You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome, fellow diplomats. This is Civil War Diplomacy, a show where we look to ease tensions in the ongoing cold civil war happening in our political arena by opening up some communication between the various factions. My name is Jordan Jenso. I am the host and a uh, self-appointed representative for the Democratic establishment. I look to bring on some guests who will get me outside my bubble and help me see another perspective on things. She is a fellow podcaster. She, I view her as being to my left, and I'm looking forward. She's my first guest that I've had on the show to my left. Um, so, Danielle, welcome to the show, and please uh, introduce yourself. Tell the listeners a little about your background. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, happy to be here. Um, so my background is in political organizing. I have a bachelor's degree in political science. I am next up on my list is to get my PhD in political science. So I'm going to be working on that in the fall. And um, a lot of just what my background has been is working on different campaigns and organizing in the metro Detroit area. So I'm definitely probably to your left. I'm probably to the left of most of your listeners as well. So I'm excited to talk to you. Well, that's what we look to do here. And so uh, tell the folks about uh, your podcast. So um, I am the host, co-host and producer of Nothing Left podcast, which is a podcast that I do with me and my buddy, Nick. Uh, We are both, I think we would both describe ourselves as democratic socialists. Um, And so we spend our time talking about current events or sometimes we'll do special episodes on different topics uh one of the last topics that we covered was the war in afghanistan yeah so yeah yeah I, i've listened to every episode and i, I very much Aww. enjoy the show and i it's one of those where when i hear your discussions it's sometimes i think to myself you know what? yeah they're making great points other times like yeah I, i'm i'm not there and it's, that's why i kind of wanted to have you on just to have some good discussions on policy and uh, show people that, yeah, we can, you know, myself as a representative, self-appointed representative for the Democratic establishment, we can try <laughs> to work through some things together. Um, and so I wanted to start out, I know we have a couple issues um, where I think we could have some worthwhile discussion. I was thinking we could start with the minimum wage, since that's one that, um, you know, they were trying to get it in the uh, COVID relief bill that uh, has just passed the Senate. But um, it, it did, was not included, and so it's probably an upcoming fight that is going to be going on in D.C. still. So um, would you want to put forth your position on uh, the minimum wage, or would you want me to start uh, with mine? Um, I can start with mine. So uh, as, as you just mentioned, Congress just voted on the COVID relief bill, and it was included in that was a $15 minimum wage increase. And as I'm sure you know, eight Democrats voted against that. And their reasoning for that was mixed. Nick and I talk about it on the latest episode. So I would encourage your listeners to check that out. little plug. (laughs) Um, But uh, the latest episode of Nothing Left. But that being said, eight Democrats voted against raising that minimum wage. And their reasoning for this was mixed. Some of them claimed that, you know, it would be improper to try and shoehorn that $15 an hour wage into a COVID relief bill. Some of them claimed that it would smother small businesses. And that's a really common argument that uh, we on the left here against the $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, I, for one, Jordan, I'll be completely honest with you. I don't think $15 is enough. Um, There was a recent study from the center of economics and policy research that actually showed that if, the wage had tracked um, with inflation since, I believe, 1968. The minimum wage would now be around $25. Right. Yeah. Now, am I sitting here telling you, you know, it's immediate Congress needs to pass a $25 an hour minimum wage? Absolutely not. I think, you know, I, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not a complete communist. I think we have to have a level of pragmatism. But, um, you know, I think $15 an hour considering that figure that I just mentioned is really not asking for a lot. So, right. okay. well, cause I, I, I'm going to try to defend the eight senators that voted against it. Um, even though really the establishment 
of the Democratic Party does seem to be on board with 15. I, I do personally, though, think that that may be a little higher than is necessary, um, partly because my view of the minimum wage at the federal level is that it should be nationally the baseline set for what is basically going to be like the cheapest cost of living area in the country. And then ideally you would have state or county or municipal minimum wages that would be above the federal level to account for their increased uh, cost of living for their geographic area. And so federally speaking, I mean, there are areas in the nation where I, I look at $12 as a more realistic minimum wage because that would be roughly, um, I think it's about 25000 a year for a full-time worker uh, you know, working 40 hours a week at the minimum wage of $12. That's, yeah, 25000 which in many parts of the country for a single person, that is a living wage. And, and I do think that that's what's most important about the minimum wage is that it should it need not exceed a livable wage because of the other side of the equation, which is that the money is coming from the business owners. And while absolutely large businesses are making massive record corporate profit, there are a lot of Main Street, small mom and pop shops that their margin isn't large enough to take that much of a hit in their labor costs. And so exceeding them, having the minimum wage go beyond what is necessary for a livable wage would unnecessarily put some of them out of business. And that's where I, I'm more in favor of $12, pegging it to inflation for sure. So that way we don't have to keep having this fight every couple of years and let it automatically you know, continue to rise. Um, but that's where I, I think that $15, that's over 31000 I believe, um, on a sale, you know, full-time salary. And I think that, yeah, 31000 is not a lot of money for an individual to make, but it is more than is necessary to get by in a lot of areas. And so I, I don't think, though, that uh, requiring all small businesses pay their employee, full-time employees 31000 is the right decision at this point. See, I, I hear what you're saying, Jordan, but at the same time, I think, you know, you say 31000 is too much in some areas. In some areas, you can get by with less. But I would contend that in a lot of areas, it's not even enough. Uh, in a lot of places, I think there was a study that came out a couple of years ago saying, you know, you can't rent an apartment on, I mean, certainly not on the 725 federal minimum wage that you are now. And I recognize that you're saying, you know, it should be a little bit more than that. I say, you know, in response to the concept that it had put mom and pop shops out of business. I'm sensitive to that issue. You know, I, my, my biggest issue, I think as someone who is politically engaged is the corporations is the fact that they rule so much of our government. They take so much from the worker. Um, they, they are the enemy. I don't think that the Republicans are the enemy. I don't think the democratic democratic establishment is the enemy. I think that, you know, if anything, politically, we need to target, I think it's these corporations. But aside from that, I will point out, you know, the mom and pop shops, they're a piece of it. And I'll address that in a second. But we need to take a look at the fact that Elon Musk has made upwards of $5 million an hour during the pandemic alone. Bezos, more double that, more yeah. than double what Musk has made. And so, you know, you and I can sit here and talk about, well, $15 versus $12. I mean, we're splitting hairs when we talk about this massive amount of money that these corporations are pulling in. So I think, you know, first of all, to put that on the table. And then secondly, to address the mom and pop shop. Um, <laughs> not that I'm making fun of your terminology. I'm, you know what I mean? Because they yeah. are, a lot of them are mom and pop shops, but right. small yeah. businesses, yeah. Um, uh, small businesses. I, I think it's important to address the fact that when it, when it comes to their bottom line, not a lot of money that they budget for is in labor. And I think that's a really common misconception. Um, but furthermore, 
Um, there's been an argument, a lot of like leftists, a lot of people, you know, in, in my corner like to say, well, if you can't afford to pay your workers $15 an hour, maybe you shouldn't be in business. I don't agree with that. I, I think that that's a little harsh. Um, I do think, you know, if it comes to like down here in, uh, South Lyon or Brighton area, we've got like a lot of great little local coffee shops. Um, I, I don't think, you know, if it's me and my husband and maybe our two kids, or me and like a couple, you know, local high school kids working all at this coffee shop. Do I think the high school kids, you know, necessarily need to make $15 an hour on principle? No. And so personally, like if, if I <laughs> was ever to be in a place of decision making, I would propose a type of law in which the lowest rung worker on the pole would make money in proportion to the CEO and yeah. so in that case, you would have something set up where Bezos, Musk, etc. could not hoard so much of the wealth. But at the same time, you wouldn't have these small businesses having to struggle under the weight of the minimum wage. Although at the same time, I still maintain my point that I don't think $15 is really as much as a lot of people contend that it is for small businesses. Well, and... And that's where, yes, and absolutely, there are areas of the country where even 15 is not really a livable wage. Yeah. Uh, but that's where I, I would then view it to be the responsibility of a state government or a county government to impose their own, which we've seen around the country, um, some experimentation with the minimum wage that absolutely. has had very good success. Um, and similarly... What they have done in California, I think, is one way to kind of address um, what we're discussing with the small Main Street business versus the large corporations. Um, the in California, I think it's they draw a distinction at uh, businesses with twenty five and more employees mm -hmm. versus twenty four and under, and they have a thirteen dollar minimum wage for the one, I think it's a $14 minimum wage for the large business. So there's a difference in the minimum wage based on if you're a small business or a large business. Um, I think what, with referring to Amazon or Musk and um, the Tesla company, with them making so much and their companies making so much money, that is strong, strong evidence that the employees themselves, the labor force, is creating more value than they are being compensated for. That's where Absolutely. the profits are coming from, is is basically an exploitation of the workers because the workers... Now you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> well, because with any employee-employer relationship, the employer has a whole lot more knowledge on the value being created by the employee's work. The employee goes into it only knowing their own personal situation and what they need to get out of the job in order for it to be worth it for them. But they don't know how much value they're creating for the company. And so that's where when you have record profits, that's strong evidence of the workers being taken advantage of in that imbalance of knowledge. But when it comes to smaller companies that don't have those record profits, that's where Yes, there are some small business jobs that don't create more than $12 an hour in value. They may not even create the $12 an hour in value. Um, and so whenever, if you're going to raise the minimum wage and put those small businesses in a place where even if they recognize that, yeah, the, the person that they're hiring may not be bringing in or creating enough value for the company to justify their uh, their cost of labor, then at that point, that really does put a lot of pressure on that job going away entirely or putting pressure on the business to close that shop. And yes, I don't want any business out there that is relying on labor where those workers still are going to be reliant upon government assistance to get by because then you and I as taxpayers are simply subsidizing that employer taking advantage of the dire straits that the worker is in. Um, but, and so it is all a balancing act and just my own. And, and so with West Virginia and Senator Manchin or some of the other senators that 
don't yet see the need for 15 in their states, I I am not going to fault them for that. I, I would think I want to see Michigan. I think our, the cost of living here is high enough that, yeah, it makes sense for 15 in our state. But there are other states around the nation where I think 12, a, a person can get by on that without at any reliance at all on government assistance. And that, I think, is where the proper balance is struck. But that's the problem, Jordan. I think if we were to pass 12, even in you know states where the cost of living is lower, you would have people being paid 12. You would have your workers, you know, that, that would be the idea, right? So, you know, you mentioned workers living off of government assistance in addition to their paychecks. That One of the um, companies that is famous for doing that is Walmart. And the Walton family, that's another company that makes, the Waltons themselves make, you know, just like Musk, I believe the, the number is close to $5 million an hour. So again, you're, you're getting back to this problem of the, the corporations having too much power. And I think you may, you said it perfectly when you said they exploit their workers. And that's what we're talking about. So I, I'm, I see where you're coming from with saying, you know, it should be up to the state, it should be up to the county. But I think that it's been demonstrated, as you mentioned, in a number of cities, including Seattle, I believe, has a $15 minimum wage. And, you know, it didn't put small businesses out. It really, it really did not. And I think you're looking at, not you specifically, but, you know, the position that you're taking, I think, takes into consideration, you know, maybe a handful of small businesses compared to these, you know, you can count them on your hand, massive multinational corporations. Um, And, and again, how many workers are we talking about that work at small businesses Versus how many that are employed by McDonald's, Walmart, um, Amazon, who only inc- increased their minimum wage after there was immense public pressure on them. And now Amazon workers are paid at least $15 an hour. Um, but, you know, you still have plenty of other massive companies that are just taking advantage of so many people. And you're absolutely right. The taxpayer has to foot the bill for that yeah. at a certain point. Yeah, and there's a lot of large companies that are flying under the radar. And so I I would be willing to support a national $15 an hour minimum wage for those there large we go. corporations. Okay. I, but I, I do I would want to model it off of what California is doing where you know you set a threshold as to how many employees it takes to be where okay, once you have that 26 employee or maybe it's 50 51 is the threshold once you have that you know that employee that puts you above the threshold and you're now a large business then yes all of them need to be minimum wage 15 but i would still want that exemption carved out in a lower minimum wage set for those small businesses who don't have the margin um because they they're not dealing with the economies of scale that the large corporations are dealing with they because their overhead is going to be so much more there relative to you know, their size, um, they are going to not have the room in their margins to, uh, to pay such a hit and pay necessarily pay all their employees the 15. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, see, I'd be willing to compromise with you on that. I think that, that that's pretty reasonable. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad we were able to yeah, hash that out a little bit. And there's some mutual comment agreement. I, I, I try to do that on this show, but it, it's hard, especially, I mean, my guess to the right so far, you know, you and I, we're starting with a kernel of a lot of common values and endpoints that we want to reach. And it's just, you know, we're trying to figure out, okay, what's the best way to get there. Sometimes, mm-hmm. with, you know, guests to my right, it, it's, it's a struggle just to find any of the common commonality that we can build off of. Um, I do want to move on to another issue uh, policy that we could discuss. Before we do, though, I want to make a plug for um, Kenny Privet Productions. Uh, I am collaborating with his company this week, Kenny Privet. Um, and if you go on Facebook, you can find Kenny Privet Productions. Privet is spelled P-R-I-V-E-T-T. And he hosts an online trivia game, virtual trivia. Um, I, My wife and I, prior to COVID, we would love to go hang out at the bar and play bar trivia. Um, during COVID, it's been a 
lot of fun to be able to play it from home. And so he's got, um, he does two games every week. Uh, starting next week, they're going to be on Mondays and Fridays. But this week, it's Tuesday and Friday, Tuesday the 9th. Tomorrow night, it's a free game of 42 questions in the Trivial Pursuit style of question. And then on Friday, um, normally it's $10, but if you, when you go to buy a ticket, if you use the code CIVIL, C-I-V-I-L, in all caps, um, you'll get a free ticket for Friday's show. And it's two rounds of 20 questions. And the second round, I actually wrote myself because uh, I'm a trivia nerd, and it's U.S. History and Politics. So be sure to check out Kenny Privet Productions and sign up for his uh, show for Tuesday night. It's free to play. And then Friday, if you use the code CIVIL, you can play and you'll get to show off your uh, political junkie chops by beating everybody in a political and uh, history trivia round. All right, so back to the policies. Let's move on to um, student debt forgiveness. I just have the assumption that we're going to disagree on this one, only because I know <laughs> myself, I take a more moderate approach than a lot that has uh, been discussed. Do you mind if I ask what your position on that would be? Forgive it all. No more student debt. Cancel student debt. All student debt, no matter Cancel what income out. the person is making right now, and no matter how much of income or debt they have, you know, so even doctors making six figures, you know, they took on a lot of debt, but they knew they were going to be being able to, you know, earn the income to pay off that debt, still just wipe off their debt, even though they've uh, got what they needed out of it. And... I suppose the way that I see it isn't a matter of do people have the ability to pay off the debt? It's mm-hmm do you have the ability to get a good job without going to college? And I mean, well, the question then becomes what qualifies as a good job. Um, I think, you know, you have to consider the fact that I think that people, kids nowadays, which I was one not too long ago, are very much pressured to go into college. I remember them sitting us down and telling us, all right, you guys are going to be competing for spots in college There was no discussion of trade school. There was no discussion of, you know, getting a job at GM and working there for the rest of your life to support your family. There was no discussion of, you know, becoming a plumber or an electrician. It was, you're all going to college. You have to compete for these seats. And I think that was out of the ordinary. Um, Although I do come from a suburban background, which, you know, it may have been the ordinary there and in more urban areas or more rural areas, it might be different, but. I think that, you know, the expectation is placed on you when you're 18 years old, 20 years old, to get yourself into at least $50,000 worth of debt. And I think at that point, I mean, a colleague of mine um, has around $90,000 worth of debt. And she told me she has just accepted at this point that she's going to be in debt forever. She can pay and pay and pay. And because the student loan interest rates are so high, Mm -hmm. around 10%, um, you know, you can just get stuck in that and be permanently indebted. And I think that that, I think that that is a flaw of the system. I don't care, you know, if I don't necessarily care and I don't feel particularly strongly about this. So it might be possible for you to make a good point that doctors should have to pay off their debt. And I could agree with you, but I, um, the, my, the core of my beliefs comes from the fact that I think that the system is inherently flawed. I think that college should be free. I mean, Obama was even saying back when he was president that at least community college should be free. And I am astounded that we don't even have that. I know Gretchen Whitmer, um, as a result of the COVID pandemic, has allowed um, first responders and Uh, essential workers to go to community college for free. But I think that everyone at least at the very least should have the opportunity to go to community college for free. Yeah. Well, and when I ran for state rep in 2014, something that I had been advocating for, this isn't so much with the debt, but it's the cause behind the debt, which is the increase in cost of college that we've been seeing for decades now. Um, Part of it is I, I was in favor and advocating for increasing competition by allowing community colleges to offer four-year bachelor programs. So, and if you make those community colleges free, 
and allowed them to offer bachelor programs. And somebody could get a bachelor for free while you'd still then have the University of Michigan and, you know, private schools like Duke University, like where you would have some of those more prestigious universities in education that people would still have to pay for. Those, the cost of those um, going that route would likely at least slow and um, not keep uh, increasing at the rate that it has um, because, yeah, they would see a lot more students choosing the free community college route if, since, as you said, so many jobs um, and careers require a bachelor's degree now. And so um, that there would be, I think that's a way to kind of walk that fine line of, I don't think the University of Michigan should be free necessarily, um, but I, I think everybody should have a free option for uh, post-high school education. Um, I am going to take the position, though, when it comes to the debt itself, I don't personally think that any amount of the principal should be forgiven. I think that the interest rate should be zero, or basically the interest rate on student loans should be the same as the Fed rate that you know they charge to banks for loans, um, which is basically zero right now. And it should be applied retroactively. So everybody that has been making payments for all these years, any amount that they paid towards interest should instead be applied to their principal. And if what they paid exceeds their principal, then heck, I mean, I, I would be in favor of even giving them a refund at that point. Um, but if they've, you know, been making their interest payments, but, you know, it's not, ex not matched their principal, I would say that they should still then have to carry, um, that principal and, continue making payments, but at a 0% interest rate. Because what I really, what bothers me is everybody, when they're choosing whether or not to go to college, they, they are faced with the situation in front of them. And so many people chose not to go to college or chose to find ways to get the money to pay for it, to avoid the student loan. And I don't want any of the people who made the decision to not acquire student loans to have tremendous regret, which I think a whole bunch of people would if all of a sudden now all that student loan debt is wiped out. Everybody that chose not to go to school because they were afraid of the loan, they'd be kicking themselves. All the people that, you know, if you still require that people pay back the principal, then you're going to definitely make it where there's not envy or just a sense of unfairness unfairness from those who don't, who never took out the loan. Anyway. What are your thoughts on that proposal? I think, you know, that sounds very reasonable. I, I like the idea of applying, you know, canceling the interest specifically. Um, I think I like that part because it involves canceling <laughs> student debt. No, um, but I, I do appreciate where you're coming from. I think it's, it's very reasonable. It's not quite as radical as I would like to go. Um, one issue that I did take with some of the things that you mentioned, as you mentioned, community colleges giving bachelor's degrees, but being free. I think, well, on the surface, that sounds good. You mentioned maintaining the prestige of more expensive colleges. And I think that that would create an issue. And rather than um, narrowing the class gap, I think it would just maintain it. Because, you know, if you have me, like, for example, I went to the University of Michigan, go blue. Um, I think that, um, it, you know, if you have someone like me who maybe paid more to go to the University of Michigan and then you have someone else who went to Oakland Community College, employers are going to look at me because my university is more prestigious and I paid for that label, for that, you know, um, reputation almost. And, and I don't think that that's fair because that's automatically giving advantage to kids whose maybe their parents have more money. Maybe they just happen to be born into a wealthier family. And I don't think that that's fair, which is why I feel like it would even the playing field if students could decide on their college based on, you know, what majors does it have to offer? Where's the location? You know, aspects like that, rather than can I afford to go to school or not? And I think that you're right in saying that a lot of people probably missed out on going to college that they might have been really great at or they might have had a natural talent for just because of the cost. And I think that that's a shame. I think it's a waste of perfectly good American minds. 
Um, another thing that I absolutely have to bring up is um, you brought up a really good point that the cost of college itself has been increasing steadily for decades. And I think that one thing we don't talk about enough in this debate is the fact that a lot of that comes back to administrative overhead. Schools these days, <laughs> kids these days, no, schools these days have become so inflated in bureaucracy that it becomes nearly impossible to um, get anything done as a student. And I experienced this myself. I went to my first two years community college, very little bureaucracy, minimal um, staff. You know, there were the professors, there were people that worked in like the finance department and there were, you know, tutors and stuff, but it wasn't a matter of when I went to U of M, it was, okay, you need to fill out this form and now you have to go to this department and this other department and this other department. Um, and that was just, you know, and I bring up my own anecdotal evidence just to validate my point is that there's so much overhead when we're paying all of these random administrative staff you know, $50,000 a year and more to do, I mean, sending emails all day. And I know that sounds harsh, but I do. I, I feel very strongly about this. I think that cost of overhead that may not be wholly necessary, I think really comes back to the student. And I don't think that that's fair at all. And I agree with that. What's ironic, though, is I, I perceive a lot of that overhead and those administrative loop or hurdles you got to go through and and just all the different people involved making a salary as part of compliance. I, in a way, that is the result, though, of the government stepping in and putting more regulations on the universities requiring them to do these things. And there, you know, with any regulation, there's always a reason behind it. And so, you know, that, that person who is having you fill out that form, that kind of just tedious, um, you know, there is an underlying reason behind it, and it's one of those, like, with most regulations, 99% of the time, it's it's unnecessary, it's superfluous, but, you know, it's there to address that 1% sometimes. Um, and so, I agree, overhead in administrations at universities is taking up a larger and larger chunk of their budget in a way that is driving the cost, you know, one of the factors driving the increased cost of attending college. Um, I don't know, though, without eliminating the corresponding regulations imposed on the universities, um, if you could, that, that would be the way to address that cost factor. But is that something that we have fully analyzed and decided where because, yeah, there are times when government is too big and government is problematic and absolutely the the solution to bad governance is good governance. I'm not a proponent who says the solution to bad governance is no governance. That seems to be like the Reagan style um, of approach to politics. But um, one other thing I wanted to go back to, though, is when you were talking about the prestige differential between the University of Michigan and a community college and how if the community college is free and the University of Michigan is not, that it would just widen the gap. But I kind of feel, though, that that gap is going to exist regardless because not everybody's going to be admitted to the University of Michigan. Schools are, and especially, I mean, if the only, I, I, I support the concept of a meritocracy where the only factor deciding where somebody goes if they get admitted to a school is you know, their, the merits of their application and what they did leading up to that point. But... Um, either way, you're going to have some people who get that University of Michigan degree and others who get the community college degree. And both of those two students are going to enter the workforce with that same gap in prestige of behind their, uh, their diploma. But the problem is, you know, if you take a kid from Detroit, who might be very intelligent and, you know, I'm, I'm entertaining the concept yeah, of meritocracy, yeah. but let it be known that I, I think the meritocracy has absolutely failed. I believe it no longer exists, but that's another, that's another topic. We do not have a meritocracy right now it, because we do not have equal opportunity, especially with the way that our, 
high school and you know, primary schools are funded and, and not achieving similar results. And so, yes, a student is so affected by their geographic upbringing. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think that that should be a factor because I do actually consider that though part of the meritocracy is their success and, you know, current level of achievement based on where they grew up and, and their, the opportunities presented to them based on their geography. Mm. I, I think that that should be a factor as part of America. Mm. But, yeah, but that's the question is... The status quo is not very, uh, <laughs> very much based on meritocracy. When you, know, you have the legacy uh, bonuses and such for you know, helping kids get... Because, yeah, I, I also graduated from the University of Michigan. And there's a part of me that is selfish and thinks, oh, it's great you know, when my daughters grow up. Well, maybe that will help them get into, but really, it shouldn't. <laughs> you know, right. they they should not be given an extra boost in trying to get to the University of Michigan just like with her as well. But <laughs> um, I I think like, I mean, you make a great point. It would be nice if you know it would be taken into consideration with admissions committees. Like, you know, well, my son got an A, and he lives at Highland Park. Versus your son got an A and he lives in Howell. You know, what are the, are those the same A? I would say absolutely not. Because right. the student living in Highland Park is going to have a lot more obstacles to even getting that grade in the first place. But then the question then becomes, if they both get into University of Michigan, who is going to go? Because who can afford it? Right. And that's the part that I take issue with. Well, and if though there is that gap, in the value of the diploma between a bachelor's degree from a community college versus a bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan. And if, there's a lot of ifs, <laughs> um, we also though have it where student loans are 0% interest rate. So you're taking it out now to pay for the University of Michigan and only going to have to pay back the principal with no interest. Um, I think then that accounts for the discrepancy in value between those two diplomas. You, you got to pay for the one, but in theory, it should also be worth what you have to pay for. It. I see the point. I see your I see your point that you're trying to make, but I'm thinking like if if you were raised in poverty and you know all you know is frugality are you going to pick the free diploma or the more expensive diploma oh there, no there's a lot of people out there risk i mean i am one of them i my risk aversion is why i did not go back to school in 2008 i really wanted to become a science teacher and so i signed up to go to eastern university and two days before classes were to start i had, i was talked out of it by somebody who had made the argument about student loans and I'd be taking on all this additional debt only to become a teacher, likely not make a lot of money and, and not be in a position to pay back those I still had my student loans from my, my bachelor's degree. And so that is where the the student, I, I, I totally empathize with those who choose not to go to college because of the, the risk of taking on that, that debt. Um, and I also empathize with those that do take on the debt because I, I'm not a student, I still haven't paid off my student loans either. So I see it from both positions when faced with that decision. And the question is, after you've made the decision, is there a policy that is going to make you really regret your previous decision? When, had you known it at the time you were making the decision, you definitely would have chosen the other option. Um, I don't know, is there any other thoughts you had on this topic or did you want to move on to another one no let's let's go for another one okay <laughs> so because i remember on one of your episodes of nothing left um you had mentioned fracking i believe and it, and mm -hmm. when you did and i think you said you wanted to ban fracking and immediately thought yeah. okay, that's one where <laughs> I, I, i'm not a fracking ban person um and He's not a fracking band person. You guys hear that? <laughs> <laughs> and, all right, when I when I ran for state rep in twenty fourteen, fracking was a big issue then. And my approach to it always was: there's costs involved in fracking, downsides, and there are also benefits. And if we just ban it entirely, yes, we're 
preventing the, the downside, the cost, but we're also foregoing the benefit. And I do see benefits in fracking in the way in which natural gas is replacing coal to power our electrical plants and decrease emissions at the power plants. And because I, I want to get off coal. And so natural gas does serve that function. And so I want to find a way in which, just like with anything, it's about balance and, and walking the line to find how you can best accumulate as much of the benefits of it while minimizing the externalities, the cost, as much as possible. Um, and I recognize the, the cost, the downside. They're numerous, especially with the, the water um, and the the water usage involved in the fracking process, injecting it into the ground and with all these different chemicals and then pulling it out. And you're, you have a very decent chance of polluting the local aquifers and causing people's well water to be totally um, undrinkable. Uh, and also, though, it's taking all that fresh water and turning it into toxic, um, unusable water that has to then be stored somewhere for a long, long time. And so there's that type of externality. There's also the property rights concern where, you know, when they're going not just straight down with the drilling, but horizontal, you know, I don't, I, my perception has always been it's not been properly regulated to know if when they're horizontally drilling, do they ever cross underneath somebody else's property? I don't think the safeguards are there um, to make sure that, yeah, property rights, you know, I don't want anybody's horizontal fracking drill to go underneath my home um, because I own the, the mineral rights underneath my home. Um, and then there's also the problem of the methane that uh, escapes from the wells during the process. But each of those items, and, and there's others, but each of those, you could have proper regulation in place to address them in, in my ideal policy world, where you have it that, yeah, the, the companies have to have the proper methane mitigation system to prevent methane from being released from the well and going into the atmosphere, totally negating all the benefits of switching coal to natural gas. Like if, if with the methane release, that is almost wiping out all of the benefits. With the externality of the, the water damage, I mean, have better safeguards in place so it does not um, you know, contaminate local wells, or if it does, place heavy fines on the companies to make the local uh, homeowners that are affected whole. And, and provide them with the fresh water that they need for indefinite, indefinitely, and also force the companies to pay for the water that they're taking out of the water supply. Um, and so, I, I mean, just is there any way that you could see fracking as being properly regulated rather than outright banned? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> All of that. And no, no, absolutely not. And, you know, you, you use this term natural gas. And I hear that a lot in the fracking conversation. But I just want to point out outright that the number one compound in natural gas is methane, which is ten, makes up about 10 percent of um, uh, pollutants in our atmosphere. So when we talk about, you know, back when there was a hole in the ozone, you remember that? Yeah. I think it healed itself, but that's caused by methane. That's caused by, um, you well, know, when people like love the, to say, what? I don't remember the long time. It wasn't just methane, but yeah. The, no, it's not just methane, but that's one of the largest components. And so when you talk about, you know, releasing methane into the air from fracking, that's the goal. Largely, I mean, it also contains water vapor and another of um, other compounds, but primarily it is methane. And to me, the concern not only I mean, that's number one. And I feel like that doesn't get talked about enough. But obviously, groundwater you mentioned is a concern. I think, you know, when it comes to property rights, I mean, that is almost a moot point to me, because if we look at the way that um, the Keystone XL pipeline, which obviously wasn't natural gas, but I mean, if we look at the way that we 
have been using stolen land as a way to uh, harvest these non-renewable resources. I think, you know, if it, if it, my neighbor gets their drill in my lawn, I, you know what I mean? Like that's, it's, it's hard to compare that when there are such bigger problems going on when it comes to native land. And I, you know, I just want to point that out. Mm -hmm. Um, Furthermore, I think the groundwater contamination is nearly unavoidable when it comes to fracking. And I found that's why on the one episode that you're referring to nothing left. I, you know, my co-host and I both found it extremely aggravating that Biden, you know, said that he would ban fracking and then went back on that and said, I will not ban fracking. And, you know, again, I will point out that this corporate influence in this country is part of the reason for that. It really is. And I know, you know, if you listen to a socialist talk, half the words they're going to say are going to be corporations. <laughs> but there's a reason for that. And I think like if you look at the amount of money that energy companies donate to politicians on both sides, Republican and Democrat, you're going to see a reason for this um, favoritism of fracking. And I think that it's um, made to seem as if it's more reasonable than it is, especially when you consider all of the alternatives that we have that are in development. I mean, solar is becoming one of the most profitable forms of energy. You know, if you want to put it in that capitalist framework, solar power is becoming more and more profitable every year. Um, Hydro, wind energy, I think that these are all alternatives that I would rather see us as a society investing in, as opposed to um, this form of energy, which is so much more harmful. And I am 100% on board in making in larger investments in renewable energy and doing what we can to switch, like increase the portfolio of our energy production and consumption to renewables. But there is going to be an interim in which as that percentage from you know, of energy produced from renewables, as that percentage increases, it's not going to be instantaneous. And so... You have, Why not? Well, I mean, because it, it just... It's not that it's not possible. Well, it, there, I don't think our system is flexible enough to, within two years, three years, have an all-solar and wind energy grid system. Jordan, I mean, can I interest you yes. in this policy uh, package called the Green New Deal? Have you heard of it? <laughs> I have heard of it. I know it's not a whole ton of specifics, a lot of, you know, vagueness with goals. And, and that's where I, I mean, I am a progressive in my values. I identify the same destination in a lot of ways and, and the reasons behind it all. But rather than, you know, I, I'm consider myself a moderate, not so much on the left versus right, but on the speed. I'm not a radical in wanting big abrupt changes. I, I prefer incremental small changes because of the concept of um, unintended consequences. But with any change, you're going to have potentially unforeseen negative things that occur as a result that, you know, the bigger the change, the bigger the potential negative outcome that you didn't predict. Um, by doing incremental methodical steps towards that similar goal, then you can better minimize the harm along the way um, is, is how I view is the appropriate path for, uh, for government policy. Um, and, and that's where right now, you know, every time we're, we burn coal, that to me is an opportunity that we miss in replacing that with natural gas. And yes, and we'll, but in natural gas, you know, with it being a lot of methane, once you burn the methane, though, I, I don't think methane is nearly as harmful as the initial, like, when methane has been burned to create energy, I, maybe I'm wrong here, but the emissions from that aren't nearly as harmful as actually, like, you know, when you release methane into the atmosphere, that's very much a, uh, a greenhouse gas. Um, and so, you know, burning the natural gas and methane, and instead of burning coal, and the emissions from burning coal are much worse for air quality and greenhouse gases. And so I just want to see 
coal be minimized as quickly as possible. And yes, I want renewables to be ramped up as quickly as practicable. But as you're working to do the, the two things, I want coal to decrease by more than what renewables can replace it with. And that's where the natural gas comes in, which would come from fracking. And so that's why I want to see it to be a feasible thing. If the option is either the status quo, unregulated fracking system that we have or ban it, then yes, ban it. But I think that there's a middle of capturing the benefits while minimizing the costs to society. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that. I do fully understand what you're saying. But I think like my frustration with that type of approach, and you mentioned incrementalism, um, to a lot of my friends on the left, I am considered an incrementalist because, you know, I don't want a full communist dictatorship right now to say, hey, look, there are going to be no more private energy companies. It's all going to be run by the government and it's all going to be solar. There are people out there who believe that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, I think that to a certain degree, we're all just different levels of incrementalist. And I guess... My hesitation with the fracking, I mean, for all the reasons I just mentioned, um, is why I'm against fracking. But I respect that pragmatism because I do, I am a political scientist and I do understand, you know, that th under the current system, it's not that easy to just push things through. I mean, you can see how much opposition there was to things like the Green New Deal. Right. However, as an American citizen, my frustration lies in the fact that I believe it is possible humanly to execute a system in which we are running off of mostly, if not fully, renewable energy. But where that gets clogged up is because so many companies that are funding the campaigns of our politicians and then our politicians in turn work to prevent laws regulating things like fracking, regulating things like burning coal. So the way that I see it is, it is within our power as a society to have all green energy. And the reason that we can't do it is because there are, um, I'm trying to think of an analogy, like there, there, we've got these wheels turning and there are things stuffed in there so they can't yeah. turn properly. Because yeah. that's what I think you asked the I mean, even a Republican, like, you know, would you, if you could pick and there were no consequences, right? No political consequences. Would you rather have complete wind energy or would you have complete oil energy? I think most people would pick the solar. So the question becomes, you know, why is it not pragmatic? And I think that's the part that I take issue with. And, and I... I definitely empathize with that. Obviously, the the dysfunctional system that we have when it comes to just implementing governance of any kind, um, you know, the system is set up to reward the obstructionists and, yes. and those who cause dysfunction. Those who prevent government from solving problems often get rewarded at the ballot box, and that is so disconcerting to, to just observe. Um, I mean, you know, we saw it many times in the last decade, two decades. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, in the ideal where the system is solved and we don't have the ability for those in the minority to just prevent good governance from occurring. Um, yeah, I mean, I would like to see bigger and bolder projects take place that move us more quickly towards renewables and every way um but short of that if we don't have that i don't think banning fracking is a benefit because we don't have that if you if we can achieve that then absolutely then we don't need the fracking anymore but but until that bill passed to pass a bill banning fracking right now would only be cutting off our nose despite our face because we would be Forgoing the potential upsides. Yes, we'd be 
avoiding the negative downsides, but that's where I, I that's why I prefer to regulate those out of existence. Um, and so I don't want to give up the benefits un, unless we knew with some certainty that we had a viable path and have that bill actually enacted that put us on a quicker path for renewables. But that's the thing is like, why would we focus on regulating fracking when we should be focusing on regulating the money in our politics? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I tell everybody, though, that that was on the ballot in 2016. Citizens United was on the ballot in November 2016. And anybody that did not vote for Hillary Clinton chose to keep this system of a world in which we can't really constrain the money that is corrupting our political system. It's it's one where had we won the presidency in 2016, the Supreme Court would look a lot different, and that one vote would have been enough to overturn Citizens United, and then you could properly address the the campaign finance reforms that are needed. But our hands are tied right now because of the Supreme Court. And so, I would argue that it was on the ballot in the primary in 2020 because there was one candidate who pledged not to take money from corporate donors, not to take money from PACs. But yet, we ended up with a different Democratic candidate who is taking corporate money. Having one side choose not to to close off avenues for fundraising while allowing the other side to do it does not solve the problem. It, it is a different problem in a way, but it's not a solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is overturning Citizens United. Until you do that, any actions that we take on our own don't fix the system. We can. I completely to... disagree with you, Jordan. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, cut no, you no, off. No, that's totally fine. And I, and <laughs> I, I think that we, the people, you know, that that's at the core of what democracy is, is the people electing representatives, people to represent them and their values. And therefore, if we all say, you know what, we don't want money in our politics, in essence, if we choose to elect politicians, I'll name drop a couple. Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to name a few. Oddly, most hated by the right, but that's another issue. Um, I, I think like, you know, when we all band together and we say, yeah, we don't want people who are going to be bought and owned by corporations. I think that that is incredibly powerful. And I think that that, in essence, does overturn Citizens United in the sense that if that candidate were to be elected, it wouldn't be because of PAC money. Mm-hmm. And and yes, I get that. And I think that that is a viable path, but I don't think it solves the problem of you're still going to have the financial interest making donations to the minority in that situation and and still able to have their influence. We we don't get rid of the influence entirely until we fully solve the problem by overturning Citizens United. We can try to get rid of it on the Democratic side, any influence from money. But that not only does that get rid of the influence of corrupting money, but it also gets rid of the influence of productive money from unions or environmental groups, or there's other special interests that whose values we identify with and align with, and we agree with, it's it's not a profit motive that is driving their campaign donations. Um, they wa- they're making the campaign donations because they actually want to support the candidate who aligns with their values, which aligns with our values. But you'd be making it where they are hindered in that process and therefore then potentially less likely to win. I mean, there's an argument as to whether or not there is how much does money really uh, influence outcomes of elections. But I do see actually we're nearing the hour mark. <laughs> and so I want to thank you so much because it's been a great uh, discussion. Are there any last thoughts that you would have? I, I would just like to say in response to everything you just said, publicly funded elections. Yes. Ooh. <laughs> <I would love> <laughs> well, Danielle Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, everybody should check out your podcast, Nothing Left. They can find it on all the different streaming services where they hear this. 
And also, I want my guests to be sure to check out Kenny Privet Productions and uh, play either of the trivia rounds Tuesday night or Friday night um, and win some of the prizes and uh, play for free. So, uh, thank you, Danielle, and thanks everybody for listening. And until next time, keep it simple. You're clear. That was a blast. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, yeah. That was a blast, man. I love, I, that's my whole thing. That's why I started a podcast because I just like talking about politics. I can do it all day.